In mid-November, Patco Construction and People's United Bank reached a monetary settlement in their dispute over a wire fraud incident dating back to 2009. The case has been widely noted and analyzed by legal experts because unique positions the courts took during their review and arguments and the appellate court's reversal of a lower court's decision. I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group, and I'm here today with PATCO co-owner Mark Patterson and Dan Mitchell, who represented PATCO in this landmark case, to discuss how their case and subsequent settlement could affect future ACH and wire disputes. Now, Mark and Dan, I want to first thank you both for being here today. Before we jump into the line of questions, could we briefly walk through the settlement that you reached with People's United Bank? Basically, the bank and PACO came to an agreement that we were to receive the original loss, which was $345,000 plus interest and no legal fees. No provision requiring us to maintain confidentiality. Are you satisfied with the outcome? No, we've been working this through the courts for almost three years. Certainly not happy about that. It's been a very uh, trying event, taking a lot of energy to get through here. That you know, having the lower court disagree with our position, then having to go to the appeals court, and then having won there, and then having to go through various motions after we won at the federal district court of appeal uh, level. It's been very frustrating. It's been very expensive. In the end, it costs us a lot of money to get our money back. And that's a very frustrating process to go through. And I just chime in, Tracy, and also say, you know, although I think the company's pleased that at the end of the day, the bank reimbursed them for their entire account loss, it would have been a lot better if when Patco had gone to the bank, right at the beginning of this thing, as it tried to do to get this resolved, the bank had tried to resolve the case at that time. I think it would have been better for everybody all around. We looked at this as a purely a business decision. We felt that we were right, but generally nobody wins when they go to court. It's a situation where we offered the bank a settlement number, 345 initially. We offered the bank $250,000 to settle this and walk away. And they said no, that they weren't going to pay even close to that. They offered a token amount and said, that's all. We're not at fault here. This is your problem. Basically, the relationship was tossed out. Three years later, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and, and deposition costs and court costs. And we're to the point where we should have been before where we reimbursed for our expenses, you know, for our loss plus interest. And I can tell you the bank has spent four or five told that amount going through this legal process. I have no idea what the numbers are, but I can only imagine what their fees have been. That's a good point that you make, Mark, because, you know, I was curious to know what your thoughts were about your settlement and whether or not it would set an example for other business disputes between commercial customers and banks when it comes to account takeover fraud. You know, I would say to them uh, if they run into this situation, and you got to remember, as Dan has uh, alluded to before, every case is unique. What did they do? How did they do it? What were their you know, way they handled this type of transaction? Were they monitoring the reports and so forth? Every transaction is very different. But if they have a situation after they look over and their experts look over it and so forth, and they say, you know what, there seems that the bank has some liability here, then, you know, I would make sure that that bank has a copy of our decision and really thinks about this process. One of the challenges you have when you're dealing with banks is are you dealing with a community bank or are you dealing with a big bank? Big banks, they have nothing in the community. They don't know the customers. There's no relationship there. In the end, 
a large bank, when it gets to this type of situation, there is no relationship. My guess is, Tracy, that this case will have a, an impact on banks and that it, I think it will cause them to really think long and hard about whether they draw a line in the sand on these cases. We know that corporate account takeover goes on a lot, and we see some cases that make it into the news, but most of them don't. And I think that's probably because most banks do decide to work with the customer to resolve these cases. This decision certainly will only make that even more pronounced. You know, and then the other thing is, you know, I've, I've talked to a, a number of people that have had losses here in, in the state of Maine, and they lost seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. It's a lot of money, but they've been advised by their counsel, and justly so after what we've gone through, that it's going to cost you a lot more money to try and get your money back. It's not worth the battle. They've said, we just wrote it off. Yeah, it's a good point. And the reputational damage that's done, of course, is something that you can't really put a price tag on, but obviously has an impact. On both sides, if you're a title company and you lose $300,000 out of your checking account, how are your customers who are banks and so forth going to feel about giving you transactions if you're losing money out of your escrow account? They're concerned. I mean, we were concerned. Our present customer is going to be concerned whether we're going to be able to perform to build their house or their building if we've lost that kind of money. Local banks, I think, have a lot more to lose because they're a local bank. It is about relationships. They're concerned about how they are perceived in the community. Since this happened, a number of my business acquaintances and friends are on the board of directors of banks, and they said, we have had discussions in our boardroom about this, and we have all agreed we will cut a deal. Now, Dan, I'd like to go back to talk about some of the things that were unique in this particular case. And one of the things that stands out is the appeals court's reversal of a lower court's decision, which initially favored the then Ocean Bank. What can you tell us about why the appellate court reversed that decision? It is unusual. Typically, most cases don't succeed on appeal. In this case, I think that the trial court itself recognized that it was a close call. And when the trial court issued its decision, uh, it recognized it was an area of first impression. There were not guideposts for the court here to follow. And so I think the court here uh, it did its best, issued a, a detailed opinion. It set forth its reasons clearly as to why it was coming down the way it did, acknowledged that it was a close call. But the appeals court took a look at it and disagreed, which is what we think the, you know, the right answer was. So I wouldn't say that the court here got it completely wrong. I, I just think that it was an area of the law that there were no guideposts. And so so in those situations, I think you're probably more likely than in most other you know, legal areas to see a reversal, and, and so that's what happened. Now, in its ruling, this appellate court raises a question about responsibilities commercial customers may have when it comes to complying with security expectations outlined under Article 4A of the Uniform Commercial Code. Dan, what can you tell us about the question the court raised? It's a pretty narrow question, actually. One of the few questions it left open on remand back to the trial court was a briefing of what, if any, responsibilities a commercial customer has when a bank's security procedures are found to be commercially unreasonable. So that's what the First Circuit found in this case, that the security procedures were commercially unreasonable. And so it left open the question, in that situation, what, if any, obligations does a commercial customer have? And we think the answer would have been virtually no more obligations than the customer otherwise would have had, because in that situation, if the bank's got security procedures that are commercially unreasonable, it's hard to think of steps that a customer could take in that event to prevent fraud beyond what the bank already ought to be doing. I mean, the reality is that even though commercial customers under the law are treated as more sophisticated than consumers, 
banks clearly are in a better position to police fraud in this area. They're in a much better position to know what the threats are. They're in a much better position to design their systems in a way to prevent this kind of thing. And so commercial customers, just like any customer, have some obligation to protect their security credentials, to protect their passwords, to protect their logins, uh, maintain a basic firewall, maybe do some other very basic things. But beyond that, with the threats that are out there today and the sophistication of the threats, you know, the average commercial customer really is not in a position to be able to stop that. So would you argue that commercial customers do bear some responsibility? Sure. I mean, I think every customer bears some responsibility. Uh, so, uh, you know, commercial customers should make sure that they're protecting their passwords. They ought to maintain a good firewall. They ought to know what the security procedures are that their bank's using so that they can uh, make sure that they're not doing anything to counteract them. They ought to uh, follow the training that's provided to them by banks. And I think more and more banks now are actively giving uh, information to their customers about threat, and customers need to pay attention to that, and they need to follow the instructions that are given to them by bank. I think those are the primary obligations customers have got. And to deal with the problem once it comes up, to deal with it quickly. If the bank is offering you more secure measures, for example, if you're working off passwords still today, I would definitely not do that. Uh, tokens, although more secure, they've gotten around tokens. To me, if you're going to do an ACH transaction today, I would only rely on a second out-of-band uh, verification. In other words, you can do a transaction, but before it goes through, somebody at the bank you know calls you, you talk to them and say, yes, John, this is what I meant to do. And another thing more and more businesses are doing, Tracy, is having a separate dedicated terminal, which they only use for banking transactions. That is above and beyond what the law requires of a commercial customer. As a matter of good practice, uh, I think more and more people are doing it because they just don't want to have to deal with the consequences of something like this. Dan, and I agree with you. We do do that. But the challenge is most small businesses have one computer. Mm -hmm. Most small businesses are one or two people. Yep. They are as exposed as a, a company like Google. Mm -hmm. they, they are in the same situation where if they do the wrong transaction and their money is moved out, they could lose $5,000, $10,000, and that would kill them. That would put mm -hmm. them out of business. In my opinion, we don't do ACH transactions. We do them, if, if we have to, for some strange reason, I can think of two reasons that we do them. One is that we have to do them for purposes of paying federal and state taxes. Payroll taxes, we're required by law to do that if it's over a certain amount. And after what recently happened in South Carolina, where all those Social Security numbers and so forth were stolen, I'm not sure that's good, but you're exposed at that point. But the other issue is, is that people shouldn't be doing them. I don't believe people should be doing them. If every business owner read the ACH agreement that their bank provides them today, they would be scared and they would not sign up for the service. So, Mark, how do you think you would do things differently now? Let's say you could go back in time to 2009. What do you think you'd do differently from a technology standpoint, if anything? I wouldn't do ACH transactions. We don't do them today. Uh, again, unless you do the out-of-band verification where you actually talk to somebody at the bank who says, Mark, you're pushing X amount of dollars to California, 10000 to this account. Is this what you want to do? And I can say, yes, that is what I want to do. Dan, I did want to go back to ask you a question about Article 4A. And actually, Article 4A of the UCC is governed by the states, and it has been adopted by each state, but it's been adopted in different ways. And 
I wanted to ask about some of the impact or implications variations at different state levels could have on legal disputes as well as security obligations that commercial customers might bear. It's one of the interesting things about this case is that this this situation is governed by state law. Uh, the Uniform Commercial Code has been adopted in each of the states. Article 4A has been adopted in each of the states. I have not done a comprehensive survey of what the law is like, how it's been adopted in every state, but uh, I'm sure there are some slight variations at least uh, from state to state. The real impact of having it exist in so many different places is that it can be interpreted in different ways. So the same issue might be interpreted differently by a court in one state versus a court in another state. In our case, we were in the federal system. So, you know, it's a little bit different because we had a federal court construing state law, essentially. But the reality is that, you know, you could get a lot of variation. There aren't a lot of reported legal cases in this area. And that's another reason why this case was important, uh, because it sets uh, sort of a, a guidepost. But yeah, it's, it's theoretically possible. Look, my thing on Article 4A is, First of all, it was adopted, you know, in the in the late 80s, early 90s. The world looked a lot different then uh, in terms of the types of electronic banking that was going on. It's probably a good idea for the uniform law commissioners who promulgate proposed, you know, uniform commercial code articles to go back and reevaluate Article 4A and take a look at it again and see if it needs some updating. Um, I'm not ready to answer that question, but I think it's at least a question that ought to be asked. I mean, the, the law was enacted at a time when there was no online banking. They ought to give it another look. Dan, before we close, I just wanted to ask one final question about Article 4A, and that is, do you think that the appellate court's lingering question about this article in the Uniform Commercial Code will be answered by a subsequent lawsuit? I would bet my bottom dollar that there will be more lawsuits in the future in this area. Yeah. What types of questions will come up really will depend on the, the unique circumstances of each case. But given the prevalence of corporate account takeover, uh, and you can you can bet that there will be more cases. I want to thank both of you again for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Again, we've just heard from Mark Patterson of Patco and attorney Dan Mitchell. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.